0: The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the True Ambition Podcast. I'm your host, John Zink, and today we've got episode number 40, and we're honored to be joined by Mr. Steven Rothberg. And uh, first of all, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, John. It is a pleasure. Looking forward to it.
0: Now, uh, Steven is the founder and chief visionary officer of College Recruiter Job Site and uh, grew up in uh, Winnipeg, Canada. He is a Canuck. And... Uh, <laughs> Lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which I'm happy about because I'm a huge Vikings fan. And uh, looking forward, skull for sure. And uh, looking forward to uh, playoff games uh, coming up here pretty quick. Hopefully it's games and not game.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I did notice the plural.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so married for almost 29 years, has three grown kids and a dog named Macintosh. Correct. Ah. See, I always do uh, a... <clears throat> Uh, uh, always have all of my guests uh, fill out uh, a form before this and didn't say Macintosh in there, but I had to look up what the name of that uh, candy bar was in Canada. <laughs> so I got it You're, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Your can, your Canadian listeners who uh, who need their teeth extracted will be very familiar with that toffee bar. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so is it like a, is it a <laughs> sticky mess or what is it?
1: It's It comes in like a a box or kind of a plastic wrapper now, actually, they've, they've sort of modernized it, but it it's like a sort of a flat rectangle about the size of a candy bar. Um, and it's hard so you can like smash it against the dashboard of your car or a table and break it up into a bunch of pieces um, and, then, and then melts in your mouth. But it, it is definitely, it's a real Canadian fixture. When, when my wife and I used to take our three kids when they were little up to Canada, that was always one of the things that we would get. And it was sort of like, a, it's comfort food. That's awesome.
0: Well, I'm glad I got it right. So yeah. you're a wild fan. Love your hockey. Yes. Yes. In, a, in an old life, uh, when I lived in the Twin Cities, I lived in Invergrove Heights, Minnesota, which is on the St. Paul side, um, a musician... And I used to play at a place right across the street from, um, XL energy center, right? Is it still the XL?
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's where the come. wild play.
0: I used to play at a place called Eagle street, which is right across the street oh. from there. Yeah. Um, it was always fun after the games cause all the people would come in there after the games and, uh, listen to myself and a guy named Rick Oliva play acoustic music all night long and just have a blast. So it was, uh, some fun times down there. And, uh, you said school, so I take it you are a Vikings fan?
1: I, I, I have to be. Yes. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready for my disappointment. It's part of what we do. <laughs> it,
0: is, it is part of what we do. I, I still have uh, pains from Gary Anderson missing that kick back in uh, uh, 1998 or whatever it was. Um, it still, still kills me to this day, but uh, hopefully, hopefully, this, this is the year. But uh, we'll see.
1: Well, as one Vikings fan to another, no matter what happens this year in the playoffs, we know the Packers are not going to win. And so we can take solace from that.
0: Yes. Thank you, Detroit Lions. (laughs) I've never been. I've been through like on a layover. But uh, what I'd like to know is uh, what's it like growing up in Canada?
1: Oh, well. So the city that I grew up in, which is Winnipeg, it's, it's right in the center of the country, East-West. And um, it's a great city for about three months of the year, uh, June, July, August. Um, <laughs> the, other, the other nine months of the year can be kind of difficult. Uh, the, um, the, the, the hard winter kind of is December through March. And the problem... With Winnipeg, um, when I was growing up there, was that the next closest city to it is where I live now is in, is in Minneapolis. So it's about a seven and a half hour drive. And for anybody who's driven on the prairies in the winter time, you know that you're taking your life into your hands if you decide to take a seven and a half hour car ride in the middle of winter. So it's very very isolated. Um, the um, But it's got a lot of culture, great restaurants, the people are friendly. Um, I used to work for a guy who said that minus forty keeps out the riffraff, Um, and that's uh, very much the case. Very much the case with Winnipeg, Canada is very, very diverse. For you know, Americans or other listeners who who haven't been, it's 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 almost like saying like, what's life in the U.S. It's like you know, if you're living in rural Alabama, it's very different than if you're living in Manhattan, um, and and that's the same. That's the same for Canada. Toronto is really different than Montreal, and that's really different than Calgary, and that's really different than Vancouver. Um, but Canada is a, a a heck of a lot to offer. It's it's a it's a it's it's a great country, and and not well not known well enough um, by most Americans.
0: Yeah, it's interesting So I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, Rush, and mm. uh, just uh, I always I've seen so many documentaries, and I, I want to go to Canada just to check it out. I grew up in a really small town in Northwest Illinois, about 1,300 people, you mm-hmm. know. And it's like just like you said, uh, whenever I say I'm from Illinois, they're like, "Well, what part of Chicago are you from?" I'm like, "No, no, no, yes. we're three <laughs> hours straight west of Chicago, and we didn't care for people from Chicago because they're from the big city, you know." So. Um, I kind of know what you're talking about there, and it's uh, it'd be interesting to uh go check it out now what growing up, what did your parents do for a living?
1: yeah, so my mom stayed at home most of the time um her education was in nursing, but after she and my dad got married and then he finished school so she she stopped working and basically raised the kids i've I have three uh three older siblings, and um uh, my dad's Education was as an accountant in Canada. They call them chartered accountants. In the U.S., they're certified public accountants or CPAs. And uh, when I was 13, he went into real estate development. So he was he was primarily an entrepreneur, and that that bug definitely got handed down to me for for better or for worse.
0: Well, probably for better. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's what, myself, I, I worked for. Uh, I'm in the IT staffing world, as you know and mm-hmm. uh, worked really got my education from other people because I, I was a musician traveling around uh, the Midwest and I ended up in Minneapolis and decided I needed to go make some money for once in my life because as a musician I you know I maxed out at about ten thousand dollars a year you know <laughs> and uh, somebody picked me up as a recruiter and I didn't even know what a recruiter or headhunter was at the time back in the you know 1998 ish uh, time frame and uh, going into Y2K Um, I just got an opportunity to become a recruiter and I always had that entrepreneurial bug as well. And what better place to be than being a hundred percent commission recruiter, you know, and you know, 10 years ago, my wife and I started our company and it's the best thing I ever did, you know? And it's like, it's tough at times, no doubt about it, but it's one of the most rewarding things aside from getting married to my wife and having my four-year-old at home. It's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done.
1: Yeah, I, I I agree. It's and you know the, there's that expression that an entrepreneur is somebody who would rather work uh, eighty hours for themselves than forty hours for someone else. Yeah. And um, it, it it can be all at the same time the best of the best of everything and the worst of everything. You can be having a day where almost everything goes wrong, but it's still at the end of the day, it's like wow, that was awesome. It was yeah. a great day. And it's not always about the money. Sometimes it's about the the accomplishments, being able to make a difference. Um, And I think you know, in in your world, in the IT staffing world, in my world, in the job board world, it can be easy to lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, the difference we make in people's lives is just crazy. You help somebody find a job, find a better career. What a huge impact that has on their lives
0: big time and I've, I've also said that uh in my line of work working with different clients you know and they're, they're paying large sums of money for either a contract person or a perm placement or whatever and if the job is done correctly there's never buyer's remorse mm. because you're helping out that person as well because you know they're dying for someone to come in and do the job they need filled so you're taking someone who needs a job giving them the right job and then this person is paying for that person to come in and do the job and everybody's happy mm-hmm. if you happen to do it wrong then you're screwing up everybody's lives but uh for the most part you know it it hardly ever happens where you know we, we do something you no know, wrong and if we do we come in and fix it right away but uh you know it, I, i've always said you know that uh if you do it right there's no buyer's remorse on either side that everybody's happy
1: yeah, so true. You know, n- employers will never say I paid too much for this really great hire. It, it, the, the problem is is never the money. The problem is the the hire, if it's a bad match. The, you know, the the person leaves or has to be terminated after 2 weeks or 2 months, if you charge them a dollar, it's too much. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's, yeah, it's but if you find if you can bring those two together, and there's a good match between that employer and that and that employee, um, everything is golden.
0: And it's interesting too because when you do, we're dealing with human beings, so some th- some things are going to blow mostly.
1: up. Mostly, <laughs>
0: mostly, mostly. <laughs> so, some things are going to blow up on you, and if you then go back and take care of the problem and the situation the right way, then again. There, there's not a problem at the end of the day because you took care of it the right way. You know, if hmm. you bury your head in the sand and go, whoop, your problem, you know, then you're really screwed and then you lose a client.
1: hmm Yeah. And I, I think that's, that is a trait that, that most successful entrepreneurs, people who have been in business, you know, for five years, 10 years, 30 years, whatever that they share, it's understanding that it's okay to make a mistake. It's about how you fix it. Exactly. And if you just try to run away and hide and don't serve your your client properly, either the employer or the job seeker, because they're both your client, double sided marketplace, yep. then you, you know if you if you handle that properly and make it right, you've what's that what's that cliche? Turn lemons into lemonade. If that client, that client, whether it's the employee, whether it's the employer, they become more loyal to you. So in a way, messing up can help you.
0: Yeah, I say it all the time to uh, our employees, our salespeople. It's like, uh, you know, when you do have something blow up and you handle it the right way, you've got a client for life Mm -hmm. because you did it the right
1: way. You know, so Mm
0: -hmm. when did you first move to the U.S.?
1: I moved in 1988 um, so um, I had just finished um, undergraduate school and I was going into law school um, to at the University of Minnesota
0: and going to law school to be a lawyer what what were you doing
1: yeah my I had a Dream from when I was about 13, I was in a youth organization, and the youth leader was a lawyer, and I thought it was really cool. Um, For those of us who are Gen Xers or older, they probably remember this this show LA Law. It was sexy at that time to be a lawyer. And um, so I decided from when I was 13, I was going to move out of Winnipeg. Um, Again, a lot of great things, but boy, the winter is hard. And I was either going to move East, West, or South. And I decided, so I applied to law schools um, in Western Canada, Eastern Canada, and in the U S got into the university of Minnesota, which is a a really good law school. Um, And then, and then moved there to become a lawyer. But my plan was never to be a lawyer for the rest of my life. My first um, um, choice preference was to be a lawyer for probably five, six, seven years, get the training and then get out and either start my own small business or join somebody else's. And the first year after law school, when I was working as a lawyer, the opportunity presented itself. And so I just, I jumped at it. So I kind of fast-tracked that that shift from being a lawyer to being an entrepreneur.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. it's. Uh, um... I loved living in Minnesota, and the university was such a cool campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had to be fun going to school there.
1: It was, it was great. Um, they, they, university of Minnesota is one of the largest campuses in the world, mm-hmm. um, but it's also in a city similar to, say, like Boston, where there are a lot of different schools in a decent sized metro area. So you didn't feel when you went to, you know, if you went to a bar and you never felt like the entire bar was just full of students or everywhere you went was all full of students, you know, like some of the, some of the schools that are bigger and in small towns, the whole downtown is just dominated by students, which I think that would be pretty cool too, in a really different way. Where the Twin Cities and cities like Boston, you might run into some of your classmates. But most of the people in the bar, the restaurant, the sporting event or whatever that you might go to were were not students. Uh, And I I liked that.
0: Yeah. So uh, what are the big differences? You grew up in Canada, moved to the U.S. What are the big differences between (laughs) Canada and the U.S.?
1: The biggest... I mean, aside from the weather, I I like to joke that I'm probably the only person in the history uh, of the world to have moved to Minnesota for the weather. Um, But uh, I think the biggest difference, at least from when I moved, was that the U.S. um, offered a lot more choices in just about everything. So for example, one of the things that was bewildering to me um, and another Canadian who was in my law school class also was we came out of Canada where all the telecommunications were, um, were a government monopoly. It was basically a corporation run by the government and your local and long distance were provided by it. So it's like, you want a phone, here you go. And you can, it's almost like what Henry Ford used to say about you know, the Model T cars. You can have any color you want as long as it's black. <laughs> and that's the way a lot of, that's the way a lot of things worked at that time in Canada. And you know, you come to the US and all of a sudden it's like, you have a choice of local phone carriers and you have a choice of long distance carriers and you have to have different ones. And the, um, you know, even just going into a grocery store rather than there being 12 boxes of different kinds of cereal, there were 120 different kinds of cereal. Um, the choice of, of professions, um, getting healthcare, a uh, health you know health insurance in Canada is single payer so the government provides it you don't have the co-pays and deductibles and choices of what kind of insurance to get and whatever so a lot of that stuff is just it's simpler it's easier it's taken care of um, but then you do have fewer choices another big difference that sort of may might be of more interest to the people listening to this podcast is at least where i grew up there wasn't this admiration for entrepreneurs that there is in the US. In the US, when you'd say, "Hey, I own my own business. My wife and I started a staffing company 10 years ago." Right? The typical reaction to people that you'll meet is, "Oh, that's pretty cool." You know, and and I wish I could have a business. I would love to own my business. I just need an idea, whatever. When I grew up in in Winnipeg, it was more of a um, a feeling of suspicion. It's like, oh, you must be ripping people off. <laughs> you must be taking. You must be taking advantage of, of your employees. It's not as much like that anymore. Um, Canada has become more um, more capitalistic in a good sense. It's become more business oriented than than it used to be. Um, it's got it's got a better balance um, in in that respect.
0: It's interesting. I got a, a friend, a good friend of mine back in the Bay Area. He's a CIO at a, a company called Ramini Street. He's Belgian. Mm. And uh, he's talking about the fact that everybody over there, for the most part, makes the same exact amount of money. If yeah. you're a janitor, if you're a CEO of a company, you might make a little bit more money, but it's regulated. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, why would you? do anything else except for what you have to do because you're just going to be handed a certain amount of money. And it's like, uh, it's interesting because he, he almost the same thing. He's got friends over there that uh, he knows from school that uh, just, they don't really want to do what he did, which is he's got that entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit. You know, he's always wanted to be a C level executive at a company Just always had that drive and he's like he has all these friends that are you know, he knows he can go back to the same place he was raised and go to the same bar that he would hang out or pub, and (laughs) those same guys are gonna be sitting in those same stools because he goes, What else what else are they gonna do? You know, it's an interesting interesting train of thought.
1: Yeah, I think that the the motivations become different than just money, um or primarily money. Right, it's, you're right. the 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 wage scales are ranges are flatter. You don't see, you don't have as much of a difference. You know, when I when I was in law school, um, I was a, a law clerk um, for Honeywell, which was at the time a Fortune 50 company, big conglomerate. It made everything from heads up displays for fighter engines to fight for, for fighter jets to thermostats to landmines everything every yeah computers i mean it's like if it had what honeywell would call a control in it then honeywell probably made it and the ceo at that time was a former engineer and his salary back in 1989 or so Was I think that I think internally the company had it pegged at being like no more than something like twelve times what the lowest income earner in the company was making. There was some kind of ratio like that. I don't know what they do now, but now it's not at all unusual to see a CEO of a company like that being paid three hundred times as much as the lowest um, salaried um, um, employee or 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 more. Yeah, And so definitely in the US, you there's a much greater disparity between the lowest paid and the highest paid. And so I do think you have more people motivated by money or primarily yeah. money, rather than I'm going to go into this job and do this work because I really like it. Um, I'm really good at it. I value it. The, 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 the money part in countries like Belgium, which I love, um been to belgium a few times it's it is different um i don't know if that's better or worse i think it depends on the person
0: i don't think there is a better or worse i think it's just different yeah um, and it's the, the, to embrace the differences is something that a lot of people in this country could uh, grab onto is embracing the differences right now mm. um because it, it's a beautiful thing if we're all the same oh. it'd suck you know so yes. it, it's 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 refreshing for me to have those differences in people. Otherwise it'd be
1: very mundane. Oh, life would be so boring if we were all the same. And, and if, and if we were all like me, life would be really awful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, when did you start
1: college recruiter? Hmm. So the, the biz, the earliest origins of the business are from 1988. Um, so I was, um, just graduating from undergraduate school in, in Winnipeg at the at the University of Manitoba, I was a business undergrad major and I published a, a map of the university campus and sold advertising around the borders. So if you can picture a paper map with sort of business card-sized ads around the borders, and I sold those to local restaurants, retailers, apartment companies, et cetera, then gave the maps for free to the university, which then gave them out for free to the students. So my revenues all came from the advertising. Right. Um, I s- sold, almost gave away that business to a couple of buddies who were staying there, one of whom c- continues to run that business and moved to Minneapolis, went to law school for three years. And in that first year after graduation, I kind of restarted uh, a similar business, but but in Minneapolis. And after t- so it's about three years of doing basically campus maps, I decided that I wanted to diversify the revenue streams uh, from the business and looked around. It's like, what, are, what do students need aside from being able to find where the restaurants are on campus? You know, a map is really useful to an incoming student, a freshman. Once you've been your second, third, fourth year, you don't need a map of the campus anymore. Right, but what you do need when you're graduating is a job. So I added an employment magazine called College Recruiter. Um, this is around 1994, and within about a year and a half, it had grown from being just an employment magazine for University of Minnesota grads to being having four different regionalized versions at about 250 schools acro- around the country. And then this thing called the internet came along. So in 1996, we created the, ver- the very first version of College Recruiter, the, the job search site.
0: Let's go back to the paper version.
1: Yeah. So the- Do we have to? <laughs> Just
0: <laughs> in, in thought. Um, so did you go to uh, different employers and then they would buy the ads or yeah like the, was it like was it set up like a classified ad or how how did you set up everything back in the day?
1: yeah, so it was a uh, glossy magazine um usually thirty two or forty eight pages long. There'd be half a dozen articles in there, you know how to write a resume, how to network whatever and and then employers. Most of whom were uh, larger employers hiring at scale, which are the the employers that most students and recent grads go to work for. So everything from package handling at UPS to temp agencies to employers hiring software engineers. So we're all different kinds of ads in there. The ads were either quarter, half, or full page ads. So to run an ad in one of the magazines for um uh the fall semester or the winter semester or the the summer was 485 dollars for a quarter page ad and um they could get discounts if they signed up for a whole year or multiple versions of of the magazine but but that so was the base did the price. magazine so,
0: come out on a quarterly basis or how often did the magazine come it out it was
1: I never figured out a good way of describing it um it was thirdly <laughs> so uh, the the College and university world is mostly broken up into sort of three time periods. There are some schools that work on quarters, um, but mostly there's a fall semester, a winter semester, and a summer semester. Okay, and that I I aligned the publication dates of the magazines to, to coincide with that. So the fall version of the magazine would come out on September 1st. The winter version would come out on January 1st.
0: So cool. So then fast forward, this thing called the internet comes out. Yeah. And did you have the <gasps> moment where you're like, okay, we need to move this as soon as possible.
1: Yeah, so this is 1996. So it, um, Yahoo had just launched. And Google was still two years away, and there were worldwide. There were probably two hundred different job boards. Um, now they are probably a hundred thousand. Right. The we paid um, a high school kid who worked for us, a um, guy named Nick Longton, um, who still works for us through through a company that he now works for, um, Arkstone Technologies in the Twin Cities. We paid him three thousand dollars to build the very first version of our website, and it was. For those who are more technically adept, it was static HTML. Um, So there was no database. You clicked on links and that link then pulled up the ad. What we did for the ads early on was we took each of the magazines, which had just been printed and literally cut up the magazines so that we had the quarter, half and full page ads, laid them down on a flatbed scanner, scanned it, created a, a JPEG or an image, and then uploaded that to the website. So you could come to the website and say, I want to see all the ads in Minnesota or, and then you get a list of them, or I want to see all the engineering ads or, you know, whatever category you want, and then you get a list of them. But you could not do is do something like show me just the engineering ads in Minnesota. But uh, so, you know, you say, show, show me all the ads in Minnesota, you'd get a list of, I don't know, 25, 50, 100 ads, you'd click on one of them and then because you were on a dial-up modem at that time you would sit there and you would wait 20 seconds, 30 seconds and yeah. the image yeah, would just yeah, kind of <laughs> yeah it would it would it would paint early on virtually all of the ads the way that the job seeker would respond to it would be to mail or fax in a resume email was almost unheard of um within about a year we had a guy working for us whose sole job was to take applications. C- candidates would fill in a form on our website for each ad, and he, and that would come to us by email. Most of our customers did not have email. So he would take all of those, print each of them off, and then fax those to the employers. He was faxing out about 1,000 resumes a day just one after another after another needless to say that that kind of job no longer exists
0: (laughs) well it's funny because when i started as a recruiter i was working in an office in uh, the twin cities uh, for a company called paragon search and selection Hmm. and uh, by the way they still owe me about twelve thousand dollars so if i ever see (laughs) tim richards on the street i'll be looking for it um uh but same thing we sat down i had the sunday star tribune would get the ads out of there find the phone numbers for everybody call them up and then in the the afternoon we'd recruit all afternoon and then you'd have to talk the person into faxing their resume to you Mm -hmm. you know it's like okay walk over to the fax machine be careful yeah or to (laughs) kinko's be careful your boss might be right there so fax it real quick and then take it (laughs) with you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, so, but it, we didn't have computers and uh, when email did get uh, become available, we had one guy who was almost the guy you're talking about, who was back uh-huh. in the back office, who was taking care of the one computer with the one email address on it. And, uh, you know, just, it was amazing. It was an amazing way to train, to be a recruiter, mm-hmm. you know, because all the tools that are available today didn't exist back then. You know, they, they all were um, formulated by people like us that were going through that. And then, uh, you know, the, the people today who have those old skills like I have that also use all the tools that are available today are pretty much unstoppable, you know, because mm-hmm. there's many people today who don't want to pick up a phone or don't want to reach out and talk to somebody personally. They just want to automate everything. Mm-hmm. And it makes it really hard. Because even though there are all these tools, it's still about this. It's the human connection and getting someone to trust you either from the candidate side or the client side to make all the difference in the world.
1: Yeah. you. I I, I suspect you'd agree with me from like a recruiting company, staffing company. you There would have been far more generalists back then. And now there are far more specialists. Yes. You've got... Right. You've got somebody in the office who's, you know, the LinkedIn person, and somebody else who's just like a a wizard at Boolean search and finding all of these highly specialized, you know, software engineers with the skill, the skill, the skill, and the skill. And somebody else who's dialing for dollars, calling into employer offices and just encountering voicemail all day long. And yeah. uh, So uh, it. It's, it's different. I, I don't know if it's better or worse um, but I, I yeah I mean anybody who is in that profession and has been since the 90s um, they're either dumb as a rock um, and just can't get out or they are, unsorted, <laughs> are unstoppable. <laughs> yeah
0: no, I got uh, I've got many guys that I started in that first uh, job with that were best friends that uh, you know all stayed in the business and we all kill it. You know, as far as, mm. you know, I've got a couple buddies that still work for companies, but they're at the top of the food mm-hmm. chain. They just, uh, you know, I had a kid four years ago, so I could start a company 10 years ago. The rest mm-hmm. of my buddies had families and really couldn't take the chance to go out and start their own company, you yeah. know, so which leads to my next question was, uh, have you built it grassroots without taking out any funding? It kind of sounds like you did.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're bootstrapped. Yeah. Um, So when I when I started this this corporation in in 1991, so the the year after the year I graduated, uh, that and um, my the total investment that I made into the company was two hundred dollars, and that was enough money to buy a fax machine. Um, I already had a typewriter, um, and I already had a computer. And I think I bought letterhead and business cards. So fax machine, letterhead, and business cards was my total capital investment. Um, we have had um, debt financing um, from time to time, but nothing like you read, you know, like a, a Bay Area company that, you know, good ideas, some interesting founders, you know, open their doors and they've got $50 million in, in VC money. Yeah, um, can but, you imagine? You know, yeah. <laughs> um and and boy, that that kind of investment sure allows you to scale really quickly and and sometimes do some amazing things. The reality is the vast majority of those companies just burn through all that cash and then they shut their doors two or three years later.
0: yeah, yeah we my my wife took out a 401k loan um, to cover my ass because I actually got fired from a company that I was at before because I they found out I was looking to start my own company, and then they said, mm-hmm. you're fired. So, which was the catalyst to get me to start the company, and then she covered us for nine months before I made my first penny, but same Mm -hmm. thing, you know, it was just like all the things that I had to learn, which will lead into my next question for you, all the things that I had to learn to become a business owner in those first couple years Mm -hmm. were so valuable to everything that I do today. And uh, if I would have had a bunch of money to hire a bunch of people to do those things that I had to learn, I wouldn't be the same person I am. So my question to you is, what were the biggest challenges for you running and starting a business?
1: Um, well, let me, let me, if I may, let me reverse that. Starting is really different than running. So I think, first of all, starting is a lot easier than running. I hear, and, and you probably do too, John, I hear friends, family members, whatever, that have never owned a business will usually reverse that. They will think that if they just have a good idea, then they're going to have a great business. And I think a good idea is the easiest and least important thing to, to running a business. Executing on your business plan and overcoming adversity is far more important. Um you know, there are a lot of TV shows out there now. You know, Shark Tank and and whatever, where they where they f- follow business owners, and you see some of the adversity. Um, a show that I like, that I nerd out of, with the Gold Rush, is all about that. It's right, like problem solution, problem solution. Right. Um. Occasionally concussions, you know, whatever. But, but there are every day in business is a, is about um f- identifying a problem figuring out what the solution is going to be and and not getting overly happy or despondent at at the results you got to keep an even keel so i think the hardest thing for me with actually starting the business was turning my back on a profession you know i, I had a law degree and i was employed and family and friends saw me that way and to go to those people and say, "Hey, I'm leaving this behind. I'm going to take a chance to start the, my own business." Um, most of them probably thought I was nuts. I was going to say, and, and, and "You're
0: it, crazy."
1: Yeah, and they <laughs> and and looking back, they were right. Um, it worked <laughs> out, but the odds the odds were, as they would say in the Hunger Games, the odds were not in my favor. Um, so, you know, starting it. Um, the way I did it, because I was fortunate to get into a business that to start a business would, did, did not require a lot of capital, my risk was fairly low. Mm-hmm. And and that would definitely be a piece of advice that I would have for anybody who's thinking about starting out is that if you're not really wealthy, if you don't have a bunch of VC money, really, really keep your, your risk low. Don't go and buy fancy furniture, you know, pick stuff up off the street or at you know, secondhand stores or, or whatever, and only put money in that is likely to generate a good return for you within say six months. That was kind of a rule I had. If I was going to spend a hundred dollars, I wanted to see at least a couple hundred dollars in revenue coming back within six months, or I wasn't going to spend it because otherwise I would have gone broke. I just wouldn't have had the cash flow for it. Running the business for me, the biggest challenge is, uh, is on the, on the people side. Um, People will laugh at this, but I hate managing people, and I'm really bad at it. Uh, it's like, oh, you're in a business that's sort of all about hiring people and you know whatever. It's like, yeah, but I don't hire people. <laughs> I'm not a recruiter, I'm not a hiring manager. Um, one of the things that I I'm look at every single day and just before you and I jumped on, I was in a leadership team meeting is seeing the leaders in our business and the people who joined us three months ago and are working part-time on an hourly basis, how much better they are at the same work that I might have been doing two years ago or 10 years ago. That is just awesome. Right. I, 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 I love it when somebody comes and it's like, hey, I know we've been doing Something this way for the last 12 years. And Stephen, you were doing it for the first nine years, but it's really stupid
0: <laughs> how we're doing this.
1: <laughs> Why don't we do it this other way? And I'm like, oh, that is fantastic. Yes, yeah. go for it. You know, so I do think that one of the things that works in my favor is that I don't have ego in how we do things. I I want us to do things efficiently and effectively. And if I come up with the way to do that, great. And if somebody else comes up with the way to do that, even better.
0: That's love. I love it. Cause uh we we have now after 10 years we're in a nice office for the first time ever. You know, mm. before that I moved into the cheapest thing I could find because mm-hmm. I didn't need anything else except for just enough to get by. Mm -hmm. You know, so what you said, I I totally agree with. And I, I'm still the guy that uh, I got a funny story. So this guy, Sal Bruno, um, he's my back office manager. He's been with us for eight years. And when he first came in, you know, he took over my back office, which at the beginning I was doing timesheets, payroll, accounts payable, accounts receivable, you name it. I was doing, I was recruiting, I was Mm -hmm. selling, I was doing everything right. And, uh, my wife knew him from working with him prior And he came in and i handed him just this stack of papers you know which was (laughs) here you go this is yours now and he took it over and i had one of those old copy machines i got from best buy that was Uh just like you know the ink would cost you more than the copier did (laughs) right oh yeah he's like he comes up to me about a month after being there and says hey, we really need to get a better copy machine. I'm like, well, there's nothing wrong with that one. What are you talking about? So it took him about a mm-hmm. month to talk me into it. But then when he got that copy machine that we paid a monthly fee for that handled a whole bunch, our business was so much easier yeah. after that. You know, so it's, uh, I relate so much with what you said because he knows that business of back office so much better than I ever would. Mm-hmm. And it had to be him coming in and opening my eyes by hitting me over the head with a two-by-four and saying, "Listen dumb- <laughs> listen, dumbass, this is what we need." And you know, ever since then, I trust him with everything with our back office because he knows how to do it. And I yeah. don't. You know so
1: And, and, to- and it sounds like like he, he also knew how to do it in the sense of he knew how to talk with you about getting that new piece of equipment, right? Oh, it, it wasn't just that he knew how to use it and and how it was gonna make him him a lot more productive and therefore you get a good return on the investment. He had to be able to show you, hey, here are the numbers, right? Yeah. If we spend X dollars on this and and it sounds like maybe financing it in a way where you didn't have to put all, all that cash right away, yeah, then, you know, you know, and I'm, my words, not yours, but I'm going to be twice as productive. And so yep. we spend $1,000 a month on this. We're going to basically double. You don't need to hire another me. You've got two of me by getting this machine.
0: And the fun part about it is looking back at it, I'm probably spending the same amount of money per month on that machine as I was on ink. <laughs> you know? But it's just, <laughs> you know, just short sightedness, but to bring in other people with those better ideas. And to watch everything flourish afterwards is the best thing ever.
1: Oh yeah, it 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 literally, I I will get tingles um, when when I see that, and and I see it a lot. Um, I, I was I was in this meeting, like I was saying a few minutes ago, that you know, just before you and I jumped on, and it's our weekly leadership team meeting. And we were talking about, okay, you know, what's happened over the last week? We, you know, what do we need to do over the next week and a half? That kind of thing. And it's like incident after incident after incident of things that I personally was not aware of, which is good. It means I'm not down in the trenches. I'm working at a more strategic level. And almost without exception, every single thing that was talked about, person who was saying, hey, this is the issue I had, and this is how I dealt with it, they dealt with it better than I would have. And it's a, it, it just gives you a lot of pride. I think it's similar. I mean, you having a four-year-old, you're not quite there where they leave the home and, and they're out on their own, but I have three kids in their 20s. And when I see them succeeding and accomplishing things, it it just it gives you that those warm fuzzies, those tingles that despite your best efforts, they're successful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The company has been around a long time. Mm -hmm. What do you do to keep college recruiter relevant?
1: Mm. You know, a lot of companies will talk about pivoting. Uh, I don't like the word pivot, I don't think it really applies to a company that's been around a long time. Pivot to me implies that what you were doing before is not working and you need to make a quick radical change to your business model. And hey, if what you were doing wasn't working or some big external force comes along, you know, some regulation comes in that makes your business model obsolete, you know, whatever, then by all means, pivot. We've never had to pivot. We've evolved. So we're on the seventh version of our website, of our our software, and each version had major changes. We've transformed our business model. If you were to look at our business from five, six years ago to where we are now, really different. Um, We're finalizing financials for 2022, but it looks like our revenues are going to be up about 75% year over year um and if you look at it on a month by month basis it's like 300%, you know like December 2022 versus December 2021. So the difference in online advertising now versus what it was 5 years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we've kept up with it and and are sort of riding the wave of the change rather than resisting changes that, that are happening externally, we're embracing them. And that's that's been really awesome. Uh, it, it might sound a little bit cheesy, but another thing that's really helped us stay relevant is to continually remind ourselves about why we're in business, what it is that we do. And so I think it was about five years ago, Um, My wife and I, who we own 100% of the company, we sat down and wrote up a business plan and we're kind of going through who we are, what our values are, all of that kind of thing. Things that most business owners don't do or don't do enough of. And we watched this video from Simon Sinek. Um, and I think the video is called like the power of why or something, something along those lines. He's a really gifted um, speaker, love, and, love Simon, by the way. Yeah. And so he goes through this example on a whiteboard and I think he's talking about Apple um, and why do people like Apple devices? Why do they buy Apple devices? And he talks about kind of the, some of the biological ways we, we make decisions. We make decisions based on emotion. And then we justify those decisions with you know, using things that are rational. So you buy Apple products because they make you feel good. And then you justify that by saying things like, look at how much music it holds, or look how easy it is to use the phone. And we did that with our business. So we came up with a slogan, um, and it's um, at College Recruiter, we believe that every student and recent graduate deserves a great career. And I'll tell you, John, literally every single day, we talk about that. Should we work with this customer? Should we add this feature to our website? Should we change something that we're doing? And we go back to that mantra, that slogan. And if it isn't about helping students and recent grads find a great career, then we don't do it. And it's really helped us get traction, uh, you know, find um, ways of improving our business and staying away from things that are v- great. I mean, really good business opportunities, but not for us. So for example, so if, you know, if you were to come to us and say, hey, I have a client that needs to hire a bunch of software engineers with five to 10 years of experience, we would say, that's awesome. Not interested it's not for us. Those yeah. aren't college students or recent grads. You know. And if you were to say, oh, well, I know that's not what you guys do, but here's a huge pile of money. You think you can do it? And we would say, well, I'm th- I think we could do it, but we're not going to do it because it's not about helping students or recent grads find great new careers.
0: And then right after that happens to you, you can point that person to IT Avalon. Ex- well, we, you know, of course. so i love it that's that's great advice and uh i'm gonna watch the uh, simon's you said it's the power of why you think it's called i
1: think i think it's called that yeah i mean definitely if you were to google like simon sinek S I, I think it's s-i-n-e-k it is um then you know the why video or the power of why or something like that i'm sure it would come up it's it's probably only been viewed like four billion times right right
0: (laughs) simon's not too popular um i I ask everybody this question and uh i want to know from you what what was the most notable event or events that led you to where you are
1: today oh great great question um so Fall of 2016, um, our our oldest son um, at the time was working as a paid staffer on a congressional campaign in northeastern Minnesota, um, right on the um, in in Duluth, which you probably remember. Um, Duluth, I used Beautiful to play there all before. the time. Awesome beautiful port city um it's 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 a it's a really fun place to visit it's it's right on the shore of lake superior so awesome forests lakes all, all of that kind of stuff so my wife and i drove up for the weekend to spend a little bit of time with him while he was like working his brains out working like 20 hour days 7 days a week for like 4 months in a row and we were thinking about sort of what is the next step the next product the next evolution for our business. And one of the things that was just starting to happen in the online recruitment business, the job board business, was that a small number of employers were wanting to pay on a pay-per-click or a pay-per-application basis. So rather than buying a job posting for 30 days for $200, instead, they would pay you a dollar or something like that every time you sent a candidate to their website, or they might pay you $50 every time a candidate applied. And so we had a couple of customers that were that were doing that with us. And the way we were handling it sort of in the back office, uh, like like Sal would be proud, was very, very manual. Um, it was a lot of grunt work, and it's like, okay, this is where the future of this business is going, the industry. You could see it in, um, how Google was selling its advertising and Facebook and Bing, it was it was mostly performance based. And so online recruitment advertising is going to go the same direction. So we're walking along the shore of Lake Superior um, in the Canal Park area of Duluth. And we're talking about like, what would that business look like? And what do we call it? And in about half an hour, it's like it was like epiphany after epiphany after epiphany. One thing led to another. And by the time we finished that walk, we had the new product designed sort of in our minds, and we had a name for it, Jobs That Scale. And we had figured out how we're going to pitch that, market that to employers, and how we were going to deliver it on a technology side. Now, again, you know, like when we were talking earlier in the conversation about the, the idea in starting a business is the easy part. The hard part is the execution. Well, it, it took about six years for us to take all of that that we thought up in an hour and really execute well so that it was working well for our customers and that we were making really good money off of it. Um, and this this past year is, is the first year where sort of like everything had come together. But we needed the people, we needed the product, um, we needed the pricing, we needed all of that stuff to work, and uh, and fortunately, we did. So that that turning point, as as I think you might uh, be calling it, was that one hour walk on on the shore of Lake Superior. Pretty good walk. Not a not not a bad day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so my next question is something else I ask everybody too: Who who's the most important? Business mentor that you've had over uh, your life?
1: I would say um, that it would be uh, my former boss when I worked at Honeywell. I was about 24, 25 years of, of, of age. Um, his his name was Marvin Graneth, and he was a senior vice president at Honeywell. His boss was CEO. And so I was by no means high up in that organization. I was very, very low on the totem pole, but I was fortunate to work with some, for somebody directly who was almost at the top. Marv was brilliant in understanding how to um, network and how to play corporate politics. And most people think of corporate politics in a really negative way. They think of it as uh, tricking people, deceiving, you know, almost kind of like stealing money from some other department to, to put it to use in your department. But what Marv understood and what he taught me was how to continually create win win situations. Look for what the other person needs, figure out a way of helping them get that. And then through basically good karma, whenever he needed something, he could go to that person and say, hey, remember three months ago I helped you get X? I need help with Y. And he had so many chips stored up that he could call in. It was ridiculous. I, I remember time after time, I would be walking with him down the hallways in this big corporate campus, and him telling me about this meeting that we were going into. And he would say, Okay, you know, Fred is the head of this department or whatever. And his biggest issue right now is X. And I figured out that if I do Y, I'm gonna help Fred get X. And that, and then he would just sort of stop. And I'd be like, well, and what's in it for you? It's like, I don't know. But I bet you within the next two or three or four months, I will know. And then I can go to Fred and Fred's going to be saying to me, how can I help? And and he will. And it just, it was like over and over and over again, he'd be going to these meetings or in these meetings and he had it all figured out. The guy was playing 3D chess when everybody else was playing checkers. Amazing. What I so what I took away from it is in in whether it's sales or whether it's working with employees, vendors, customers, whoever, is just always try to create win wins.
0: Yeah, big time. And then uh, I mean that's 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 politics to a T. You know, it's like I'm just as you're talking, I'm just thinking about uh, you know what's going on in uh, Washington D.C. It's mm-hmm. like they, they're, they're just holding on to chips for later on and like they're bending and breaking and all that kind of stuff just to, you know, play a chess move about uh, a year or two down the road with that person that they're making a deal with.
1: Yeah. And, and, and some of those so-called politicians play a zero-sum game, mm-hmm. right? The only way that I can win is if I make you lose. And yeah, that's just a horrible
0: that's... way to look at things.
1: Yeah, it's foolish, it's short-sighted. Life is too short for that crap. But yeah. if it's kind of like a, you know what? If if I do this for John, yeah, you know what? Maybe, maybe not. It's going to come back to benefit me. But if I do this for a hundred Johns, then when I need something, I know I'm going to be able to get it. Um, you know, people talk about planting seeds. That if you if you plant seeds today, then you'll eat tomorrow. And right. and that's that's what, that's what Marv Granth taught me.
0: It'd be great if the politicians thought of the people benefited from it, benefiting from what they're doing instead of just them benefiting from what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't mm-hmm. that be wonderful?
1: <laughs> but I don't want to
0: get into politics. It's it. <laughs> I never <laughs> talk about politics and I won't. It's just like, it, it's so much garbage. Um, but, I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everybody to end the True Ambition podcast. So uh, my background is, uh, I went through, and I got sober about eight and a half years ago. And Mm. going through that program, I found a quote that changed my life. That Mm. quote is, that true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. When I read that, it kind of changed my life because in my early life, I did everything for John. Money, girls, cars, houses, whatever it was, it was all about John. When I changed things up and found that, uh, you know, true ambition is something a little bit different, that's when I started this website. That's when I wrote a book called True Ambition. Just everything's about true ambition, which is to help other people. Mm -hmm. My question is to you, You've been along, you've been a lot of places, you've done a lot of things, you've done a great thing with your company. Knowing what you know now, what is your true ambition in life, both personally and professionally moving forward?
1: I get the most satisfaction out of creating an atmosphere where I lay the foundation for other people to succeed. If I can start something that other people can then pick up, And, you know, run with that ball, you know, to use a cliche, that provides me with more satisfaction. I would, I I love seeing situations where I might identify an opportunity. I know somebody, I make an introduction, and then that then facilitates the success of others. Sometimes that success rubs off on me, you know. I might get a, you know, bit of a better, better paycheck from it or whatever. But just the good karma, the good feelings that come out of it—that's that's that's better, you know. A lot of times, the happiest people in the world are the ones that give the most. You you don't see too many people who are despondent and volunteering in soup kitchens. They're <laughs> right. the hat. They're, they're, you know, those are the people that they can go home and they have very little in, in, in terms of material means they don't drive fancy cars. They're not going on fancy vacations, but they're the happiest people. Right. And, and I, 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 I think we can all learn from that.
0: Amen. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. It's been a wonderful podcast and uh best of luck with college recruiter and uh We'll stay in touch and uh, hopefully uh, connect here in the future.
1: Skull Vikings.
0: Skull. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the True Ambition Podcast. My guest has been Steven Rothberg with uh, College Recruiter Job Site, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Cheers, John. Thanks, everybody. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.TrueAmbition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And
1: I'll be your protector.